with on-demand talk shows 24-7. I see. This is TalkZone.com. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the powers vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of healthcare each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, it's uh, several states uh, that have taken top honors in the Golden Carrot Awards. The healthiest school lunches uh, in the U.S. have gone to schools in Illinois, Pennsylvania, California, Washington, and Massachusetts. Ones that focus on, yes, fresh fruits and vegetables. He wears three hats. He's a board-certified endocrinologist. He's also quite the medical maverick and himself a patient who has suffered from low thyroid. The book, The Thyroid Paradox, is your low thyroid being overlooked. Dr. James Rohn joins us today to tell you and me how to get the best care for hypothyroidism. After all, every tissue in the body responds to thyroid hormone right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. We knew it, we knew it, but to what extent? The new revelation, thanks to a published study in today's Journal of the American Medical Association, is eye-opening to many. Uh, Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, led a study published in today's Journal of the American Medical Association indicating that 67% of medical school teaching hospital departments and 60% of department heads either receive money or have some uh, sort of financial relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. Worrisome potential conflicts of interest for the medical schools that are educating our physicians. They took a look at all 125 U.S. medical schools, the biggest independent teaching hospitals and their department heads, and found that department heads often serve as paid consultants to companies, were paid to give speeches to to physician audiences, receiving food and beverages, money for travel and meetings, research equipment and supplies, that more than half the department heads with financial ties to the industry (laughs) felt that their relationship had a positive influence, a positive effect on their department's educational program. What is it about the medical profession that they are so naive to think that sponsor dollars do not affect the outcome, whether it's educating physicians, patient care, what you and I care about as healthcare consumers. We have seen study after study indicating that sponsor influence often relates to a more positive outcome for that sponsor's product than the lack of, of, of sponsor influence, an objective approach. And um, it just it, it boggles the mind 
because we know we don't often get the best care that's uh, individualized or the best care based on science. We get the care that is based upon what industry dollars have flowed. Now, a revelation in today's Journal of the American Medical Association that drug industry cash is found flowing to our medical schools. And you know, that will be just so commonplace. What we, what we find, you know, the, the often perpetrated, uh, situation for many years to come. Because if you influence doctors at a basic medical school education, you have influenced them through the breadth of their careers. And I think all of us as, as uh, healthcare consumers should be very, very concerned about that. All we have to do is pick up books like uh, Dr. Jerome Kassir. Here is a physician, um, professor of medicine at Yale University and Tufts University, the uh, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, author of the book On the Take, who lays out to us the extent of the pharmaceutical industry's influence on the medical profession and the detrimental effects that we find from that. Drug industry cash found to flow to our nation's medical schools. Stretch or not to stretch. We know when it comes to regular physical activity, many of us have had that ingrained in our brains. You need to stretch beforehand. You need to stretch thereafter. Or do you? Now the Cochrane Library has done an analysis of what's in the medical literature, uh, compiling the results of ten studies examining what impact stretching before or after exercise had on muscle soreness and stiffness. And we are led to believe, need to stretch, it's good for your muscles, need to stretch, it'll help uh, relieve that soreness. And now, the research revealing that stretching does nothing for soreness that people experience after a strenuous workout. Because we have learned from many uh, research scientists that the soreness after exercise is because those muscles have depleted the energy substrate that their little powerhouses, their mitochondria on which they rely. That's all about the D-ribose and unless you're taking D-ribose before and after exercise you can stretch all you want according to this analysis by the Cochrane Library and you will still experience that muscle soreness and stiffness. If you want to find out more, we'll post this at our website, healthytalkradio.com. We hear about it from time to time, particularly in school situations, and think, oh, you know, that that's tragic, but really think nothing of it. According to Dutch research published in the Journal of Neurology, we should think a little further about people who survive bacterial meningitis. They found clearly one in three survivors of bacterial meningitis experience cognitive impairment. Their mental powers are impaired either temporarily or even permanently. And of course, uh, this, when we take a look at long-term consequences of bacterial meningitis, perhaps we'll take it a little more seriously given the fact that we seem to be at a real crossroads when it comes to the war on bugs. Since, um, gosh, five decades ago, we thought that medicine 
thanks to the antibiotics, help the answer, the cure for the bad bugs, whether they'll be bacterial, viral, or fungal, only to find out that that anti-medicine approach, that antibiotic, antiviral, antifungal approach, antibacterial approach, hasn't been particularly successful. The bacteria are smarter. They mutate. We know disturbing that natural balance of good to bad bacteria, good to bad viruses, good to bad fungus. Even if we try to do that with antibacterial wipes, in the end we're dealing with smarter, much more drug-resistant bugs. So with two new reports out showing the drug-resistant superbugs are becoming much more common. And the consequences of that, just amazing, that more than 90,000 Americans get potentially deadly infections each and every year because of these superbugs. So the first overall estimate of the invasive disease caused by this germ, which begs the question, if these drugs are, if these bugs are drug resistant, then what? We certainly know that, um, at least according to the science, we need to take a look at some of the more long-lasting, more natural approaches to these, uh, these superbugs, the stabilized allicins, the oregano oil, the use of uh, silver compounds, uh, all of which have been studied at university levels. The incidence rate of 32 invasive infections per 100,000 people, according to published research in today's Journal of the American Medical Association, is just sobering that only one in four involve hospitalized patients that were either were in a locker room or a grocery store or uh, uh, gardening in our homes, that these staff fatal- uh, fatalities now exceeds the death from AIDS, So, which makes us think it's time to, one, support our immune system, two, to get over our antibiotic, antibacterial approach and learn to live in harmony, really fostering the good bacteria to crowd out the bad bacteria rather than this anti-medicine approach. You want to read more, we encourage you to read uh, a professor of internal medicine from the University of Michigan, Dr. Gary Huffnagel's book, All About Probiotics. We're going to return to talk with endocrinologist and author Dr. James Rohn, his book, The Thyroid Paradox, How to Get the Best Care for Hypothyroidism, 800-307-3002, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, back to the only talk show host in America certified to be 100% organic, Deborah Ray. A special guest joining us today to talk about an important topic and with the unfolding conventional medical literature telling us some amazing statistics about our thyroid. Uh, now estimated that 27 million Americans diagnosed as having low-functioning thyroid, a question uh, by even endocrinologists as whether or not the normals are actually normal if we have underdiagnosed low-functioning thyroid. The fact that thyroid is just so essential. Every tissue in the body responds to thyroid. Brings to us today, uh, gentlemen, well, I guess today he's wearing four hats. First and foremost, the author of an important new book about uh, which we're discussing today, The Thyroid Paradox, 
how to get the best care for hypothyroidism. He is a, a clinical endocrinologist, uh, a patient himself in the realm of uh, thyroid function, and as well an open-minded physician who is willing to look beyond some of the, the dogma, some of following the test results when it comes to thyroid function. He's Dr. James Roan, who joins us today. Dr. Roan, hello and welcome. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So tell us the story. What happened with your own bout with less than optimal functioning thyroid? Well, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism when I was in the Air Force. I was actually an endocrinology fellow in San Antonio at the time, and I was doing some research uh, about uh, 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 thyroid metabolism, actually, in athletes, and I was using, not not being an, an athlete particularly myself, I, I was using myself as a sedentary control, and we did some testing, and it turned out I had a mildly high TSH, I had a TSH of 8, now, as, as you may know, the, the the TSH level is the is the major test that uh, almost all doctors use, uh, uh, often exclusively, to diagnose thyroid disease. And high TSH levels indicate low thyroid levels. And my TSH was mildly elevated, as I say, at eight. Um, the upper limit of normal being about five. And, you know, it occurred to me that really for years I had been mildly fatigued, nothing major that really, uh, you know, that I necessarily thought there was anything abnormal going on, but mildly fatigued and sort of mild intolerance to exercise. I would uh, wear out after running a half a block. And fortunately, I was working with some open-minded endocrinologists in the Air Force, and they, uh, we did some additional testing, including a TRH stimulation test, which uh, did show that I had uh, mildly low thyroid function. Unfortunately, that test, uh, that TRH stimulation test, which can often uh, clarify borderline situations, is not available in the United States now, which is one of my big concerns, and nobody's complaining about that. No endocrinologists are really seem to think that's a problem, but I do. But in any case, I had the test. It showed mildly low thyroid function. I got put on Synthroid. I've, I've been on it for, I guess, uh, 16 years now, and I've felt great ever since I've been on it. So as you speak, uh, Dr. Ronan, in the thyroid paradox, that, that tendency to clinical um, uh, simplicity, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> You know, trace for us the, the history in terms of, of thyroid functioning, and uh, you know we can also bring into the discussion you know perhaps some of the environmental factors that affect our thyroid as well as to uh, you know how we found ourselves. Uh, you know, it wasn't until recently clinical endocrinologists were actually saying, "Oh my goodness, maybe the normals aren't so normal, Doctor Roan." Right. In, in terms of uh, laboratory tests yes. that are normal, not right. really being normal. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about tracing the history, I think physicians 50 years ago didn't have the laboratory, sophisticated laboratory tools that we have today, and so they relied on a very seat-of-the-pants approach, talking to the patient and examining the patient. I remember, and I actually relate this story in the book, I I was talking to a senior internist at at my multi-specialty clinic where I work at at a Christmas party, and uh, I was actually joking with him because our cat was hypothyroid and we were having trouble getting the diagnosis made and and he mentioned well and and I said well you know it's it's kind of difficult to diagnose 
patients as well, human patients. And he said, well, you think it's bad now, you know, 50 <laughs> years ago when I was training. And he was talking about obsessing over slowed reflexes and things like that. And, you know, I've never really done that because by the time I trained, we were pretty confident that we could diagnose all thyroid disease very easily just with one or two simple lab tests. And so I think, you know, we've gone from... Uh, a state where we didn't have very good labs and we depended on talking to the patient and looking at the patient and examining the patient uh, to, to now I think we've kind of the pendulum swung too far where we've become overly dependent on the labs. Uh, certainly they're very useful and I wouldn't want to try to take care of thyroid patients or, or any other patients without the labs but I, I, I don't think we you know, just like we, 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 we don't want to exclusively depend on a history or an exam, you know, we, we, we don't want to exclusively depend on the labs as well. We've got to use all of the tools uh, that we have available. And as I say, I think we've gone from a time when it was all clinical and no labs to now it's almost all labs. And uh, one of the comments I, I make in the book is that when I was a medical student and uh, doing my internal medicine residency, everybody taught me treat the patient, not the numbers, meaning, you know, if there was some lab abnormality on a piece of paper, but the patient looked absolutely fine, well, maybe we don't want to get too uptight about that lab abnormality. Uh, you know, maybe maybe just repeat it and see if it was a mistake or something like that. Well, when I went through my endocrinology training, it, it literally seemed like the opposite, where they were teaching, you know, all we're going to pay attention to is these labs, because that's what we're all about is hormone levels. And if, you know, it doesn't matter if the patient is tired, if they're thyroid levels are normal on a piece of paper, uh, then it's not it's not their thyroid. That's sort of a common joke passed around amongst endocrinologists. Oh, it's not their thyroid. Uh, you know, the patient may have complaints. It sounds like thyroid disease, but if the lab uh, says it's not, then, you know, we don't treat them and we say, oh, you know, you need to look for some other explanation like depression. And uh, my uh, the way I treat my patients is, uh, first of all, you know, I, I, I listen. And I'm not saying, all, you know, doctors don't listen, but, you know, everybody, everybody, including doctors, are in a big hurry and, you know, trying to see more patients. And often I think history and exam gets pushed aside. And I try to listen carefully to their com uh, complaints. And, you know, if, if, if they're complaining of fatigue and hair loss and weight gain and, you know, other things that can go along with hypothyroidism, uh, then I, I will have a very open-minded approach to my laboratory evaluation. First of all, uh, I, I will uh, certainly check a TSH level, which is the one test that everybody does, but I uh, almost always add to that a free T4 and a free T3 level, which gives us additional information. I spend a little more money on it, but I get more information. And uh, and then I interpret those labs in light of what the patient has complained about and, and what my exam has shown. And if 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 there's some very subtle abnormalities that 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 other doctors would commonly ignore, you know, if if the patient has complaints that go along with hypothyroidism, I'll say, well, you know, maybe this really is hypothyroidism, and you know, those subtle abnormalities are really significant. And I'll give them a trial of treatment. I mean, it's it's usually not going to do 
it's, it's very rare that a trial of thyroid hormone, you know, observed carefully and followed up carefully is going to do anybody any harm. And if it doesn't do them any good, well, fine. You know, we've given them some information. Maybe it's not their thyroid. But if it does help, then, then I, I may have changed that person's life. Like, just like getting on thyroid hormone, I really think changed my life. Well, before we delve into, uh, Dr. Rohn, some of those questions uh, that you uh, have prompted us to think about, including, you know, what is T3 and T4 and, and uh, you know, what are the, th- the hormones involved in the thyroid, uh, we'll come back and, and talk about, you know, why we should care, why we're hearing more about even the thyroid heart connection. Dr. James Rohn joining us today, his book, The Thyroid Paradox. How to get the best care for hypothyroidism. We invite you to join us right here on Healthy Talk Radio. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may be eye-opening, controversial, and disturbing to some closed-minded members of the medical community, but it is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests as well as our knowledgeable host. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, that's life. I'm Deborah Ray with Dr. James Rohn joining us today, R-O-N-E. He is an endocrinologist. He practices in the Murfreesboro, Tennessee area and has a new book, uh, The Thyroid Paradox. Just a great, um, the meat is there, but it's easy to understand how to get the best care for hypothyroidism. We're going to return uh, before we delve into um, some of the, the definition, the understanding of concepts like T3 and T4, uh, Dr. Rohn, to talk about you know, a more broad-based approach why, you know, hair loss and feeling tired, um, you know, can certainly affect one's quality of life. The, you know, the unfolding revelation that even heart health is connected to thyroid health. Talk with us right. a little more detail about this, please. Okay. Um, actually, when, it, when I was in the Air Force, a, a cardiologist uh, once joked with me, uh, said, when the thyroid fails, they don't call it the big one. <laughs> and that's true, but uh, it, it really is turning out that uh, not only high thyroid levels, which we've known for a long time that high thyroid levels can stress the heart and often cause uh, dangerous, irregular heart rhythms, but now it turns out that low thyroid levels and, and perhaps even very mildly low thyroid levels, so-called subclinical hypothyroidism, can increase the risk for coronary artery disease, which, of course, is, is the leading killer uh, in the United States. Um, and the reason for that is we, we now know that just like uh, low thyroid function slows the metabolism of every tissue in the body, as you mentioned, it also slows down the metabolism of lipids, cholesterol, and triglycerides. So if we have low, uh, low thyroid levels, we end up having higher... LDL cholesterol levels and, uh, and triglyceride levels, and uh, over a long enough period of time, that, of course, results in uh, atherosclerosis and an increase in risk for heart attack. Uh, also, if, if we think about uh, what low thyroid function does, you know, it, it, it causes people to be fatigued, they, they may gain weight, they don't feel like exercising, and so all of those things are also going to contribute to, say, an increased risk for diabetes and you know higher blood sugars, and that's going to uh, increase the risk for heart disease. So I think 
in 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 not necessarily an obvious way, but in in sort of an insidious way, low thyroid levels do increase the risk of uh, of heart disease and, and heart attacks. And in the book, in the book, the thyroid paradox, Dr. Rohn, you bring up terms like central hypothyroidism versus primary hypothyroidism. Right. Help us to understand the difference. Okay. Well, primary hypothyroidism is what everybody usually thinks of uh, when, when, when you hear the term, and, and I include most doctors in that too, when, when we talk about hypothyroidism. That is, that's low thyroid levels that are due to a defect in the thyroid gland, the organ in the neck. And, and the thyroid has been, say, damaged by uh, an attack from the immune system or uh, the thyroid's been removed by a surgeon or something like that. So there's, a, there's some defect in thyroid hormone production. And that results, usually results in the pituitary gland, which normally stimulates the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. The pituitary becomes overactive trying to get the thyroid to work harder. And, and that's where the, this TSH level, thyroid stimulating level, uh, hormone level that we've talked about comes in. Uh, TSH is the pituitary hormone that in normal people stimulates the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. So if, there, if the thyroid is inactive or, or operating at a low level, the pituitary is going to produce more TSH to get it to work. So when we look at, at lab tests, we're going to see a high TSH uh, with, in primary hypothyroidism. And so that's what most doctors look for when they're trying to identify thyroid disease. Now, uh, we talk about uh, this term central hypothyroidism, and that's, I mean, it, that's well known. I mean, nobody argues that, that central hypothyroidism exists, but truthfully, most doctors out there, cer- certainly most you know, family practitioners and and uh, and internists, in my experience, don't look for it. I mean, they know it's there, but they don't think about it and don't look for it. And the difference uh, between primary and central hypothyroidism is that in central hypothyroidism, the problem is not in the thyroid gland. The problem mm-hmm. is somewhere else, okay. either in the pituitary gland or in the brain above the pituitary gland. The way things are normally supposed to work, mm-hmm. the brain stimulates the pituitary to make TSH, which then stimulates the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. Well, if something is going wrong in the brain or the pituitary gland or both, uh, then the thyroid's not going to get adequate stimulation and the thyroid hormone levels are going to be low, but that TSH level uh, may not be elevated. It may be normal, what what endocrinologists call inappropriately normal, you know, in, in the face of, of low thyroid levels. Sure, sure. But since uh, most doctors only look at a TSH level uh, to try to identify thyroid disease, if, if the person has central hypothyroidism, that... Uh, they may totally miss that. That's not going to show up on their radar screen because that normal TSH is, is going to look normal to them on the piece of paper, sure. yet you know, it may turn out that the patient's T4 and T3 levels are, are low, but if they never look, they won't know that. And then they're going to you know, go on ignoring the patient's symptoms, or even if they're not ignoring the symptoms, they're going to go off looking for other things and never realize that indeed it is the thyroid causing it. So let's talk about thyroid testing because many of us, uh, particularly as healthcare consumers listening to you, think in terms of standard thyroid uh, hormone uh, profiles, T3, T4s, the TSHs, 
um, as you indicate, you know, some of the common blunders uh, uh, made in medicine include, you know, just relying upon these numbers, uh, uh, particularly overlooking, um, you know, trends and, and where the TSA falls on the scale. So you, you brought up terms like free T4. Where are we in terms of, you know, do we have the ability uh, to test thyroid function? You mentioned a test that isn't even available in this country, Dr. Rohn. Right. Um, well, as I mentioned, and I'll just kind of uh, probably the best approach is to sort of go through the list of the common tests and explain what they are. I've already mentioned the TSH test, right. which is uh, uh, the, the most commonly used one, and uh, I'll come back in a second uh, to talk about some controversies in, you know, what, what actually is a normal TSH level. But the TSH is the pituitary hormone that stimulates the thyroid gland, and so it, when, when all that's working, it reflects how much thyroid hormone the body's seeing. It's not an actual thyroid hormone level. It's just the body's response to thyroid hormone. So it's an indirect test, uh, even though, like I say, it's the most important one that's, that's used. Um, the free T4 level, and, and there's various ways of measuring T4, but T4 is the major product of the thyroid gland. And I describe it as the uh, the more abundant but less potent form of thyroid hormone. It's sort of a, a precursor hormone or an immature hormone that uh, is produced by the thyroid gland. And then that gets converted in various tissues all over the body into T3, which is the more potent form of thyroid hormone, and, and, but, but it's less abundant in the blood. And uh, T3 is what actually gets into our cells and interacts with the DNA in the nucleus and actually produces the, the various effects on metabolism and other things that, that we associate with, with thyroid function. So um, uh, we, we can, we, we have, rely- now none of these tests are perfect, and I think right. that's the important thing right. for the public to realize, and, yes. and, and doctors as well, because I think, again, too often we just get used to and lazy about just reading a number on a piece of paper and we right. don't think about where those numbers are coming from and, and that those tests are useful tools, but just like any tool, it's, you know, they're not perfect. Uh, but the, the free T4 and free T3 levels in most people are pretty reliable. And I think in many cases, you know, for, for what we're talking about, T4s and T3s can be uh, uh, more useful than a TSH. I wouldn't like to try to interpret any of them without the other, but as, as I said, like in central hypothyroidism, we, we will have, might have a normal TSH level or perhaps even a low TSH level. And, but then the clue that maybe that person ha- has a, a low thyroid level uh, is that their free T4 and or their free T3 is actually low or perhaps more commonly not truly low, but but low normal. If, right. if, if I see a patient with uh, a free T4 of, of 0.61, where the lower limit of normal is 0.6, and they've got a, nor- uh, you know, a TSH that's maybe just kind of borderline high, I'm going to label that person as being hypothyroid, whereas somebody else you know, who's not paying as much attention to the, to the pattern uh, as, as to the actual numbers, you know, they're going to look at that and say, oh, both of those are within normal range, patient's normal. Uh, now, you, we, we had talked about the TRH stimulation test, which right. is no longer available in the mm-hmm. United States. Uh, I, that, that, that's frustrating to me because, as I said, that's how my thyroid 
disease was diagnosed, and I used that very commonly up until 2002 when the drug that's necessary to do the test was taken off the market by the FDA. But uh, the TRH stimulation test involves injecting TRH, which is the brain hormone that stimulates the pituitary to make TSH. Okay. And then we would measure TSH levels uh, several times for an hour after that injection. And what we were looking for was to see how, how fast and how high the TSH went. And if it didn't go up as high as it was supposed to, that was a good indicator that the pituitary wasn't functioning normally. And so that was a way of, of identifying central hypothyroidism. And it's a little more complicated than that. You can actually identify subtle forms of primary hypothyroidism, and that was the case with me using this test as well. Uh, but the problem is that the drug TRH that we inject to do this test was taken off the market. And it's really surprising and, and almost appalling to me that there hasn't been an outcry from my colleagues and, yeah. you know, the people that are really in a position, you know, professors at universities and, right. and, and people like that who uh, are in a position to do something about it. They, they seem to have just accepted the fact that we don't have this test available. Uh, but there was there was a study done, and, and truthfully, I don't remember what country it was done in. I think it was somewhere in Europe, uh, but it was published in Endocrine Practices, which one of our major U.S. endocrine journals, less than a year ago, um, talking about whether or not TRH stimulation tests were still useful. And, and that study concluded that they were. It was useful. Right in, you know, these, you know, sort of borderline situations where it's not clear what's going on, and that's always been my feeling, and yet, you know, the test is available in other parts of the world, but it's not available here, and as I say, I, I truly don't understand why or why we're not worried about it or complaining mm-hmm. about it. Intriguing, intriguing, as is the fact that, um, you know, even reading the conventional literature, we, we read of these large numbers, 27 million Americans with with less than optimal functioning thyroid. And, and you talk, uh, Dr. Ronan, in your book, The Thyroid Paradox, about factors like selenium, um, factors like um, uh, drugs like propanolol. So, so what are some of the, the factors, um, either environmental or, or nutrient or, or drugs, that uh, may have, you know, led to, gee, we, we have a lot of people who have less than optimal functioning thyroid these days. Sure, and, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about that topping, and I think we're, we're only just beginning to scratch the surface in our understanding, but uh, uh, selenium, for example, is, is a trace mineral that is necessary for thyroid hormone metabolism. It's, it's required for the enzyme that converts T4, the inactive form of thyroid hormone, to T3, the active form. Uh, and so a person may have, you know, normal, uh, a, a normal uh, T4 level, but if they can't convert it to T3, they're still going to be hypothyroid uh, in terms of how they feel. Uh, uh, so if you don't have enough selenium, uh, that, that can result in hypothyroidism. Now, fortunately, selen- this is, the United States is not, by and large, a selenium deficient area, but there are some areas of the world where, it's, uh, uh, where, where selenium deficiency is a problem. And I will, yeah, I think it's, it's, a little, it's, it's, it's still a little bit controversial, at least in the United States, whether selenium supplementation, I'll just caution your viewers here, whether that's a safe and useful thing, and I've seen some 
some negative studies about it. One study suggested selenium supplementation might actually increase the risk for diabetes, but I was actually at the American Thyroid Association meeting last week in New York City, and one of the speakers did conclude that as long as iodine, uh, uh, as long as the person was not iodine deficient, that selenium supplementation probably was helpful to the thyroid. Uh, the other thing, by the way, that selenium does is it helps prevent uh, oxidative damage to the thyroid gland, so it may actually help prevent uh, primary hypothyroidism damage to the thyroid gland. Okay, now, hold that thought. There, there's just, oh, I'm sorry. We don't want to miss a minute, so I'm going to ask you to hold on that thought. We'll pick it up when we return with Dr. Okay. James Rohn joining us today. His book, The Thyroid Paradox, How to Get the Best Care for Hypothyroidism on Healthy Talk Radio. Twice the fiber and half the fat of regular talk shows. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. Dr. James Rohn joins us today, R-O-N-E. For those of you who asked me to take a moment to, uh, to spell, clinical endocrinologist, open-minded practitioner, himself uh, a thyroid patient and the author of The Thyroid Paradox, How to Get the Best Care for Hypothyroidism. Um, is there a website relating to the, to the book or can they find it in all the, uh, the major uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon sources, Dr. Rohn? Uh, it is available on Amazon.com, and uh, it's, it's nationally distributed. Uh, I know it's available in Barnes & Noble nationwide. I actually saw it in uh, uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York City last week, so that was a little bit of a thrill. But, yes, it, it should be available in all the major bookstores. Well, I don't want to overlook treatment. I, I'm suspecting that we need to do at least a part two because we're going to cut all that short because, you know, bringing up thyroid, uh, uh, and, and iodine, uh, in particular, where we're reading um, more and more. In fact, I, I just uh, saw online the last week that um, at least one study showing that 70% of women of childbearing age in this country uh, eat iodine-deficient diets. What does that mean in terms of thyroid function, Dr. Rohn? Well, in... Uh... I don't think we know a lot about thyroid, uh, or excuse me, iodine deficiency in the United States. And what I mean by that is worldwide iodine deficiency is a major problem and it does cause a lot of thyroid disease. Uh, mainstream endocrinology uh, con- does not consider the United States an iodine deficient area. And truthfully, I'm, I'm not aware of the, uh, 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 the study that you're talking about suggesting that there, there's iodine deficiency in, in some People diet in the United States is certainly if that's true that that could could be a thyroid problem. All, all of our salt, uh, uh, at least most of the salt in the United States is is iodized, for example. So iodine deficiency is not a big problem in the United States. I caution my patients uh, about iodine supplementation because iodine's effects on the thyroid gland are really fairly unpredictable. So if if we're not certain that a patient is deficient, I, I would avoid iodine replacement because depending on the circumstances, it could actually trigger high thyroid levels, can even trigger low thyroid levels. Uh, so I probably should just leave it at that because it's a complicated area, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a big proponent of iodine supplementation, you know, unless we have a documented deficiency. Well, it is interesting. I mean, the, the Japanese, I guess, uh, uh, through their regular consumption of sea vegetables, apparently right. gets a, a large, a much larger iodine intake than we do in this country. 
That's true, and, and a lot of when you when you look at studies done in different parts of the world, you have to take that into consideration. Our studies done on the thyroid in sure. Europe, uh, which is an iodine deficient area, uh, may show different findings than here, or different findings than in, as Good you mentioned, point. Japan, which Good has a relatively point. high iodine. Intake. Good point. Well, uh, we didn't even we, get to supplementation. Can, can we impose upon you to come back again? Oh, absolutely. Great job. Great information. Thank you. We look forward to part two with Dr. James Rohn, The Thyroid Paradox. In case you missed anything, HealthyTalkRadio.com. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you to live long, stay healthy.